0: One of the many things that's amazing to me about the life of Billy Graham is not just that he grew up in rural North Carolina. It's not his physical lineage, but his spiritual lineage. You see, the faith of Billy Graham is actually traced back to a Sunday school teacher. It was a Sunday school teacher by the name of Edward Kimball. Edward got involved with a group of young boys that he wanted to teach the gospel. They were just rowdy little boys. Like, I mean, little boys are want to be. But as he taught week after week and reached out to them, one of those boys responded to the gospel, and Dwight L. Moody was saved. Dwight Moody came to be a preacher of the gospel, a very powerful instrument in the hands of God. And under one of Moody's evangelistic campaigns, a young man by the name of J. Wilbur Chapman was saved. Chapman went on to preach, and under his preaching, a a baseball player, a -a rough-as-a-cob baseball player win at any cost, man, by the name of Billy Sunday, came to the faith. And Billy Sunday was called to be a preacher. And one of the events Billy Sunday was preaching at, a young man by the name of Mordecai Ham came to faith in Jesus Christ. And he too was called to preach the gospel. And under one of his events, in the preaching of the word, Billy Graham came to faith. Now the thing that's amazing to me as you look at that lineage traced back to a Sunday school teacher is that none of those men were thinking, I'm going to reach the next great evangelist. You know what they were doing? They were simply being faithful. They were saying, Lord, you have called me to this task. I'll be faithful and I will leave the results to you. Now, in like manner, our call is to be faithful. Could it be possible that up here on the choir, in the choir this morning, you saw one of the future Billy Grahams? Possibly. But our job is not to single that one out. Our job, our responsibility is to be faithful in instructing children in the faith. See, our call, church, the call to which we will be held accountable, is the call to make disciples. That's what we are to be about. And that is what God will call us to account for on the day of judgment. And to begin making disciples at an early age. It's my view that discipleship begins in the nursery. The first exposure a baby has to those who know Christ can set the pattern in many, many ways. The problem the church has, and Trinity included, is this, it is so easy to get sidetracked, isn't it? I mean, we know what we're about. It's kind of like this experience that happens to me all too often whenever I go into the grocery store. One of my kids will be with me and I'll say, listen, i got to run in to Food City. i just got to get one thing, okay? We are out of ice cream and this is a serious issue. i got to get one thing, so come on with me. And 30 minutes later, I'll come out with a buggy full of stuff. You see, that's easy to happen to us. We are folk. We are to make disciples, but then we get sidetracked. We get sidetracked sometimes because we don't see the value in children's ministry. It's very easy for us to start out saying discipleship is what we are to be about. Then before we know it, we begin to emphasize, well, the the children's ministry is really about providing care for kids. So mom and dad can go to church or mom and dad can go to Bible study and not have to, to worry about the kids. And so that it's very easy for us to develop an attitude of keep the kids entertained, teach them a good story or two, but otherwise it's for mom and dad. If that is our attitude, we are missing the point. Indeed, something far worse. We are guilty of playing marbles with diamonds. We're taking something extremely valuable, eternally valuable, the life of a child, and making it into a babysitting service? No, the children's ministry is far more than that. It's easy for us to get child-tracked, though, sidetracked into thinking that, well, okay, we don't want it to be a babysitting service. I agree with you, Pastor, but this is what we want. We want you to teach our kids how to be good. Teach them how to be good, little boys and girls. Teach them values. Teach them morality. Teach them about right and wrong. Now, I want to go on the record here. I am for teaching right and wrong. I'm for it. Values, thumbs up. Good with that. However, you do realize that a person can have good values and still not know Jesus Christ. A person can have good morals and still not call Jesus Christ their master. A person can have correct values and still not value Jesus as the Messiah. If being good is the target that we are shooting at, we can hit the bullseye, but that's the wrong target. Our goal is to teach them to value Jesus. Our goal is to teach them to serve the Master. And if we do that, I'm firmly convinced everything else will fall into place. So our goal is not just morality. Our goal is the gospel. Our goal is to hold up as supreme the value of knowing Jesus Christ. But then we get sidetracked in another way. We fail to see the value of the body of Christ as a whole. It's easy to become compartmentalized as a congregation. In Trinity, that happens to us to an extent. We have each little group. And there the twain shall meet. So that our thinking goes like this. Well, when my kids are in the nursery, I will work in the nursery. When my kids are in the children's ministry, I will work in the children's ministry. When my kids are in the youth, I will work in the youth. And when they graduate, hallelujah, my work is done. It's somebody else's turn. Let me ask it to you like this. What would happen if a bodybuilder only focused on his upper body? He'd look like a pear with toothpicks. Okay? It wouldn't be good. We are to work in strengthening the entire body of Christ. Psalm 71 is about that. About passing the faith along. About looking at the next generation and not getting caught up in, well, I'll work on this age when I'm this age and then it'll stop. The psalmist states very clearly at the beginning of this that God is his refuge and his fortress. He calls out to God, rescue me from the wicked. We don't know the circumstances going on, but it becomes evident that this person is approaching the end of his life. He's an older gentleman. He talks about gray hair. He talks about having learned from his youth. He talks about troubles and calamities that he has seen in life. And now somehow there is an accuser, an enemy that is standing over him, telling him smugly, God's forsaken you. It's over. Look at you. You're an old man now. What good are you? And the psalmist comes back and he resolves that he will not listen to such lies. He resolves that he will praise God as long as there is breath in his lungs. He resolves that as long as he can, his mouth will tell of God's wondrous works. He resolves that he will declare that God alone is his hope. And now in verses 17 through 21, he turns his attention to the next generation. There are three things that I want to see in this passage to give us a guide in taking the gospel to the next generation. First is this, from verse 17. We must have a consistent commitment, consistent commitment, to take the gospel and make disciples of the next generation. Notice where he begins, verse 17. Oh God, from my youth you have taught me. As I said, the picture of this unknown psalmist is that time is catching up with him. Look in verse 9. He says, don't cast me off in the time of my old age. In verse 18, he says, so even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me. And he's been around long enough. In verse 20, he has seen his fair share of troubles and calamities. The song of his life is beginning to crescendo toward the end. And as he looks back, he sees a consistent melody. Speaking about God. Look at verse 8. My mouth is. Notice this is no past tense. Even in old age he says, my mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Verse 14. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. Look in verse 15. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts and your deeds of salvation all the day. And then you come to verse 17 where he says, I still proclaim this is a person who will not stop, that has consistently in the past praised and taught about God, who is consistently in the present praising and teaching about God, and who is adamant that as long as he can, he will praise and teach about God. You see, this psalm is not that God get me out of this and I will become a preacher prayer. This is a man saying, Lord, you have taught me from my youth and I want to pass that along. Now when verse 17 says, oh God, you have taught me from my youth, the question becomes, how did God teach him? Did God speak out of heaven just with a voice? Well, possibly But I think the way God is consistently taught is through parents who are committed to him, passing the faith along, and then that parent being in a community that shares that value, that shares the commitment to Yahweh and passing it along. How does God teach? He teaches through his people. So when this psalmist says, from my youth you have taught me, he is saying, Lord, you have worked through other people to teach me your way. And notice the consistency of that. What he learned as a youth has set the course for his life. Church, we need a call for consistent commitment in taking the gospel to the next generation. Now, I want to confess up front, I'm about to use an illustration that I've used before. So if you hear this and you start thinking, Pastor Mark's losing it. He's used that before. I'm well aware that I'm losing it. But this, I love this illustration. Because to me, it's a classic picture of consistent commitment. In 1983, the very first ultra marathon was held in Australia. It was a race from Westfield, Sydney to Melbourne. 544 miles. There weren't a lot of competitors in that race, to say the least. But one man showed up to run that shocked everybody. His name was Cliff Young. The reason he shocked everybody is he didn't fit the profile of an ultramarathoner. He wasn't young. He was 61 years old. He showed up not wearing the latest in lycra outerwear to run in. No, he showed up wearing overalls and gumboots. He made the decision, however, though, not to run with his dentures in. He said later, the dentures rattle when I run and it's distracting. So he took out his dentures. The guns sounded him. All the runners started off, and there was Cliff Young, 61 years old. That's how we ran. Step by step. Cliff Young won that race by 10 hours. Caught up and passed everybody. At the finish line they asked him, What did you do? How did you sustain yourself? Well, I, I carried pumpkin seeds with me, and I ate pumpkin, and they had water all across. Everybody was amazed. They looked at me and said, Well, Cliff, when did you sleep? Sleep? You could sleep in this race? (laughs) He kept at it. He was so amazed that he won that he took the $10,000 prize and divided among the other five people that finished. That's consistency. You see, we love the flash in the pan, the immediate burst, the sprint to the end. But what is needed is a consistent commitment that goes step by step because discipleship to the next generation is not a sprint, it's an ultramarathon. And we need that commitment as a congregation to say we are in it just for that because it's easy to do in sprints, an event here, an event there. But building relationships that will be impactful for the gospel takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. That's why athletic coaches are not signed for weak contracts. It takes time. And as a church, we must be in it for the long term. Working to understand the culture so we can share Jesus with those who are in it. And to do that and not lose our way. Because not only do we need consistent commitment, we need clear content. Notice how the psalmist focuses on what, what he proclaims. Verse 17. I will proclaim what? Your wondrous deeds. Verse 18. Don't forsake me. And I wonder if he says don't forsake me if he's thinking about death. If he says God don't let me die till I proclaim your might. So we see already, he proclaims God's wondrous deeds. He proclaims God's might. Those are synonymous ideas. Verse 19, there's an implicit idea that he proclaims God's righteousness. But explicitly, he says, you have done great things. Those are words that are used to describe God's act of deliverance in the Exodus. So it's as if the psalmist is looking back and he says, Lord, even though it happened generations ago, I proclaim your name because you brought us out through out of Egypt through the Red Sea. You provided for us in the desert. You brought us to the promised land. And God, you made us your people. And Lord, that was a wondrous act because we couldn't deliver ourselves. In fact, verse 19, when he says, Your righteousness, O God, reaches the heavens, I want you to think of righteousness not just as a state of being, but as a state of doing justice. Righteousness and justice are synonyms, but justice is something that one does. So when he says, Your righteousness, he is really saying, Lord, Your actions to bring about justice, Your actions to do right, reach into the heavens, because, Father, You have done great things. There is no one like You. Now the psalmist views the act of deliverance as the righteous act. Of God For us, as we look at the cross, we recognize that the Exodus was simply a paradigm of what was to come. It was a preview of coming attractions to say the greatest act of God's righteousness when he acted justly and graciously was on the cross of Jesus Christ. So whereas the psalmist may say, Lord, I want to proclaim your wondrous deeds in the Exodus, we say, Lord, we will proclaim your wondrous deeds in the cross and the resurrection Because we want to point our children to Jesus Christ and to him alone. But understand, remember, our goal is discipleship. Evangelism is the first part of discipleship. It's not the end. We cannot have the mentality that says, well, we've got him to Jesus, we're done now. We must have a commitment that says we will teach and instruct. In fact, in verse 17 where it says, Lord, you have taught me. That word taught carries with it the idea of not just instruction, but taming. Learning the boundaries like a river that is within its banks. Discipleship is a process of learning to think, understand, and act as Jesus would. So evangelism is a part of the beginning of discipleship where we teach children, youth, adults what it means to live as Jesus in this world. Now, there are challenges in doing that. And if we are to do it effectively, we must recognize those challenges and work to overcome them. Dr. Gene Twinge has just published a book entitled I-GEN. The iPod, but it's the I with the G E N. It's about the generation born from 1995 to 2012. In her view, it's the generation that follows the millennials. Those born from 1995 to 2012 make up 74 million Americans, 24% of the population. She chose 1995 as kind of the line of demarcation for two reasons. One, it's when the Internet came on the scene. Those born 1995 and, and after cannot remember a time when the Internet did not exist. The second line of demarcation occurred two years after that, 1997, when the first iPhone came on the market. She said, this generation is the first generation to go into adolescence with a smartphone in their hands. Now, what she says, she says, these are things that are here. They're not good, they're not bad, they are. And we must be careful, she said, in in reaching out to that generation. Not to automatically come in thinking, well, all this is bad. I mean, it's very easy to fall into that thinking. And I have to watch myself because sometimes I speak and I sound like my father. What you doing with that phone? When I was a kid, we had a dime in our pocket and had to find a phone booth. And we liked it that way. It was easier. The phones aren't going away. The internet's not going away. Now, she and her book list 10 characteristics of the iGen generation. I want to give just four of them. Because I think these are pertinent to us as we think about discipleship and communicating and reaching children. First is this. She said the iGen is marked by what she calls in-person no more. Most social interaction is now done over the phone, smartphone, via social media. There is less and less person-to-person conversation. She said it plays out something like this. And, and let me just, as I was reading what she said, I put it in my own thinking. When I was a teenager, 13, 14 on up, the worst thing in the world for me was to be at home on a Friday night and a Saturday night. Lord, don't, please, please. You know, I would call somebody up and say, hey, do you want to go riding around? When are you going to pick me up? You know, don't want to be at home. Couldn't wait when I turned 16 to get my driver's license. I remember sitting in school, watching the clock. All right, 3.15, mom's picking me up, going, going, DMV. That's not the case now. Children and teenagers are content to be home more and more. They don't have to go out to connect with people. They do it online. There's no more of a drive, if you'll pardon the bad use of language, to get their driver's license. The interaction they need is around them, and mom and dad are still there to take them wherever they need to go. In person, no more. A second thing she says that marks children and teenagers today is a great rise in insecurity. You can see why. She marks two things. One, the family is no longer secure. And then, what happened last week is another reminder why kids are plagued with insecurity school shootings. She marks that this is a first generation that is seeing a continual increase in depression and anxiety medications. There is a steady stream of fear and anxiety about the world around them. She also says this is a group that's irreligious, there's a decline in being involved in religious activities. She's not a believer, she's just a researcher. Not that a believer can't be a researcher. But she's saying, they're they're not religious. They're spiritual. They're spiritual minded. And then finally she says, the fourth thing is they are indefinite. They don't want to define things rigidly. There are new attitudes toward relationships. New attitudes toward what constitutes male and female. All these things are coming together. Now, here's the thing. We can bemoan that. Or we can say, that's the world we're in. Now we're going to take the gospel into that world. Now we're going to learn how to connect. And here's why I don't lose heart in face of those things. If we say they're in person no more, deep down we are made relational beings. And there is a hunger for relationships. What that means is, when that moment of crisis comes, a smartphone cannot give you a hug. A smartphone cannot be there to touch you personally, to say, we are with you. That's where the church can come in and reaching out and meeting kids where they are, that when that moment of crisis comes, and it will, we are there in person. Flesh and blood incarnating the gospel. Some will say, well, what about the securities? That's where we say the security we have is not found in this world, it's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's also where we as a church take steps to let children know this is a safe place. Twelve years ago, we had members that had foresight enough to begin instigating a security team here. And I thank God for them. Years ago, we started doing background checks. Anybody that works in the children's ministry goes through a background check. We will do what we can to communicate this is a safe place. Because we want to model who God is. To say, He is our security. And more than anything today, we need to be standing for the truth. Because even though there is an increase in spirituality and a decrease in religio- religiosity, we are still religious beings by nature. You can't eradicate that. We are made to be religious because religion, in the sociological definition, is this. It's how one relates to God. We are made to be religious. Let me give you an example from John Ortberg in his book, God is Closer Than You Think. It tells us about a family he met who had a three-year-old girl. This three-year-old girl said that she was raised by a family that were atheist. Her mother and her dad worked to be sure she had no contact, no contact at all with the Bible, with the church, nowhere at all. But one day she got old enough, she looked at her dad and she said, Dad, where did the world come from? The dad began his answer with all the naturalistic, scientific, evolutionary thinking. But then to kind of poke fun at Christians, he said, But now, honey, there are some people in the world who say that all of this came from a very powerful being. And those crazy people call him God. (laughs) At this, the little girl's eyes got real big. And she started dancing as a three-year-old can. And then she looked at her dad and she said, I knew it. I knew what you told me wasn't true. I knew it was God all along. You can't eradicate the nature we have to seek, to seek what is spiritual. So you see, we don't withdraw from those challenges. More than ever, we go in with a clear conviction because we need those definitions. We need to know God's intent in the world around us. And we cannot rely on the world to come across and teach those values. There was a period where, even if we did not share the same faith with those who did not believe, we shared the same values. No more. No more. That time's done. We now are clearly light in the darkness. We are now clearly swimming upstream. But once again, we don't get discouraged. Why? That's where the church has always been. Now we've got them right where we want them. We're not afraid. Because the gospel can meet those challenges. But we must start with teaching our children. So we do it with this consistent commitment. With a clearly defined definition of what we're doing. Focusing upon Christ. But we're going to do it with the conviction that all of us can be involved. That's the third thing. The psalmist states clearly, verse 20, where his hope is. And he knows that God will see him through. And now you get somebody looking back. Verse 20, you've made me see troubles and calamities. This is a person who says, I have been through it. But look what he says. But you will revive me again. This is a person sharing from their life, not just theories, not just what he learned in Sunday school, but he is saying, real life, I faced this and God delivered me. He goes on to say, you will increase my greatness and comfort me again. What we need is that involvement of those willing to share their past, their experiences with the goodness of God. In real life, real time, put it very simply, We need to find ways for senior adults to interact with our children. We must work for that. We need involvement on both ends. We need senior adults that are willing to step out of their comfort zone. And we need those children have to be willing to listen. We need to hear the stories of God's faithfulness. It struck me when I sat down and I started reflecting on my childhood. How many of my teachers when I was in Sunday school were over the age of 50? Who saw it as their responsibility to teach the next generation? We need to hear that conviction of the gospel to know, Senior Saint, you are not done. Not at all. God was gracious in giving me parents that were not perfect but godly. They strived for that. My mama taught me up to the day she died. She passed away on April the 7th, 2016. About a month before her death, we saw she was getting weaker and I was talking with mom. God blessed me with a relationship with her. Her and I talked about everything, even going back to to when I was a teenager. As mom got older and after dad had passed away, we would sit down. I asked her, mom, what do you want at your funeral? And she looked at me and she said, I'm so glad you asked me that. Let's talk about that. But as we felt like her life was starting to ebb away, I sat with her and I looked at her and I said, mama, are you afraid to die? Her eyes got real big and she looked at me like I had asked her if the sky was green. And she said, heavens, no. She said, when I die, I get to see Jesus. And I've got more people waiting on me there than I have here. I'm not afraid to die, Mark. And don't you be afraid either. She was teaching me. Even though I was in my late 40s, that's what we need. And youth, don't write off people just because they're older. That's the real danger where we worship innovation. And you think, nobody understands what I'm going through. I tell my kids, I may not have had an iPhone when I was a youth. But I do know what it is to be lonely. I do know what it is to be made fun of. I do know what it is to be bullied. You see, there's commonalities that we share that are not defined by technology. And we need to engage for the sake of the gospel in sharing those stories and opening our lives and finding ways to do that. So I ask you, senior adult, however you define yourself, Middle-aged adult. Will you just today begin by being open to saying, Lord, how would you use me in the children's ministry? Is my attitude like the psalmist who says, Lord, even to old age and gray heirs, don't forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation. Are we open to that? You may say, I don't know what I would do. Don't figure that out. What I would encourage you to do is this. Email, call, go up to Brittany, write her a handwritten letter if you don't use email, and say, Brittany, I don't know what I'll do, but I want to be involved. Help me figure out how. I'm praying that Brittany Carson, our children's director, will be absolutely so overwhelmed that she doesn't know what to do. You can thank me later, Brittany. (laughs) Trying to figure out Saying to the staff, I've got so many people wanting to engage. I don't know what to do. God will show us what to do. But we've got to start by recognizing our responsibility to make disciples of the next generation. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me right now. Nathan and I will be at the